Seattle's Morning News, and we go now to CBS Congressional Correspondent Scott McFarland. Uh, what's on the the must-do list before the end of the year, Scott? Let's start off with tomorrow, Dave. Vladimir Zelensky is coming to Washington, D.C. tomorrow, meeting first with the Congress, then meeting with the president at a moment when aid to Ukraine is in a real fragile, I would say a bad spot. There's this insistence by both chambers, Republicans in both chambers, to add new U.S. border security law, new immigration law, to any package to fund Ukraine. And the White House has said they need Ukraine money by the end of this month. Let me tell you something. There's no earthly way Congress can agree on a compromise and new legislation on something as nettlesome as immigration Mm -hmm. before the end of this month. Something's going to have to give, and Vladimir Zelensky is going to try to twist some arms and ensure that something gives. I mean, we've been hearing about this for years in terms of immigration. What what magical bill? And I, I know that there are we've got all sorts of iterations of immigration bills that have been flowing around Congress for years. But what kind of magic is there in those bills that would suddenly shut off or, or at least uh, control the flow of migrants? Here's what the U.S. House Republicans want. They want the package that they approved by the House Republican majority earlier this year. It would continue the building of the border wall with taxpayers paying for it. It would reduce the president's ability to give asylum or what they call parole to many people who are trying to come to this country, arguing that they're the victims of domestic violence or political persecution. And they would increase the number of border agents dramatically. Um, Critics of that plan say you can have a billion, 11 billion border agents on the border, and it's not going to stop the flow of immigrants across the line or from other areas into the country. You can people saying that the border wall is a 13th century solution to a 21st century problem. These things aren't going to fly with the Democratic majority in the Senate. And the Senate has come up with bupkis for an idea to put Mm. to the House so far. This isn't going to happen by the end of the month. Okay, but who... I'm trying to figure out who's right here. The um, Okay, we know the wall doesn't work because there's all sorts of ways to get around it, but is there anything that can be done to stop the the magnetism that the United States seems to have? Is there something in the law that's telling migrants from all these... It's not just, you know, it's no longer just Mexico anymore, right? It's from uh, South America. That this is not the place to come, that uh, there are there are better solutions to your personal crisis than to come to America. And... Donald Trump is campaigning now on this argument of, quote, closing the border, which I, I don't know what that means or what that is. I also don't know that that works. I think that's a it's also it's more of a, a fictional idea than a realistic idea, because, yeah, there's a magnetism to the United States. There has been as long as we've been a country. And I don't think there's a way to stop that um, immediately or in the short term. It's a this is a problem you solve gradually, incrementally. And it's, it's hard to tell who's right and who's wrong, because when it comes to this issue, everybody's got a point. Everybody's got an argument. Everybody seems to want the same thing, legal immigration. But this is why you don't attach this to, quote, emergency aid bills, because it's a it's a process to change immigration law. It takes years. It doesn't take days. Yeah. All right. So in terms of how urgently Ukraine and uh, Israel need more aid from us, it sounds like Ukraine has the uh, I mean, the, what I read over the weekend was what is that the counteroffensive has stalled. They're not making uh, any headway. So it doesn't look like Russia is motivated to to seek peace. So how much longer are we going to be expected to support this fight? That's the argument. Any number of people on Capitol Hill here in D.C. are making as this is a um, this is a blank check we're writing to a place that 
can't judiciously use the money um, and guarantee any results. There's justifiable concern about endless war because it sure does seem like a stalemate. But there are also criticisms, Dave, from any number of Senate Republicans that some of this money that U.S. taxpayers are coughing up is vulnerable to waste, fraud, and abuse. And I suspect between now and December 31st, we're going to hear this argument increasing that maybe they don't need the money by the end of the month. Maybe that's an artificial deadline the White House has set to try to leverage Congress. I bet that's the counterpunch we get because they ain't going to move the money by the end of the month. So they're going to have to argue that it may be, maybe we can do this early in 2024 and not leave vulnerable anybody in Ukraine. We'll see if it works. Okay, the waste, fraud, and abuse thing, that's alleging that there are elements within the government of Ukraine that are siphoning off some of this money? I think ultimately the argument would be that when you throw billions of dollars into a war-torn country, it's hard to know where it all goes, um, that maybe it's not being you know, cannibalized by the leadership of Ukraine, but that when it's you know, a fire hose of money, it's going to spray somewhere it's not supposed to spray. Now, are they going to hold hearings? Um, without, without malintent. Are, are they going to start holding hearings to point this out? To a degree, they've tried. Um, House Republicans have tried to make that argument. But yeah, how many things can they tackle at the same time? Because they're going to launch an impeachment inquiry into President Biden this week. They're having hearings on Hunter Biden. They expect him to show up here Wednesday to testify. That ain't going to happen now that he's facing new charges. Oh, by the way, there's Israel aid. Oh, by the way, there's two government shutdown deadlines looming in days, January, February. That's right. Where's the room for hearing? And, and they're having hearings on anti-Semitism in colleges. I don't know where the bandwidth is. Yeah, I almost forgot. Government shutdown. That's the <laughs> there, there's the big. I mean, now you're, you've been very good at predicting which of these shutdowns are going to happen and which are not. Is uh, is this a serious thing or just more drama that we can uh, safely ignore and just enjoy our Christmas? We're going to find out real soon. Uh, here's the thing. I talked to some of the more hardline House Republicans, one of whom, uh, Troy Nels of Texas, still wants Donald Trump to be the Speaker of the House. That's how hardline he is. <laughs> what? He, told me in so many, he told me in so many words, Dave, that we have no choice but to cut deals with Democrats now. With Kevin McCarthy leaving, with George Santos gone, the margin of, of, of majority is almost invisible, yeah. non-existent. So they, if, if, if hardliners acknowledge you have to cut deals with Democrats to keep the government open, this shouldn't be difficult for Mike Johnson. He shouldn't have to worry about his job. If Troy Nels is a barometer in the rest of the House conference, I think they're actually going to work with Democrats because a two-seat majority is nothing. I mean, you, two people that get a cold and your majority is gone. <laughs> they're going to have to work with it. This, and I know this is too soon, but I'm going to say it. This could unravel faster than the Seahawks season. <laughs> Thanks a lot. That's all we need. <laughs> Piling on. Wow. Yeah. Uh, no, I just... <laughs> I'm so I'm still uh, I'm still curious. So even even though they have to get along together to get something done, it's just going to be a one off that 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 wouldn't signal maybe a little more cooperation going into the campaign season. I think it's it's, it's more utilitarian than that. It's more yeah. practical. I mean, nobody wants a government shutdown, especially when one of the shutdowns is the military. Um, they're going to have to cut deals with Democrats to do the, the blocking and tackling of government. They tried when they had a five-seat majority to thread the needle, and they couldn't. With a two-seat majority, uh, you can't have any two members of the House holding the rest of Congress hostage. They're going to have to make some compromises. I'm less concerned about a shutdown than I was before Santos's expulsion and McCarthy's retirement. CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Thank you, Scott. Thank you. 636 Seattle's Morning News and our 35th annual Holiday Magic event is coming up Wednesday, so it's time to highlight the story 
of one of the foster kids being helped by Treehouse. So, imagine a child moving here from another country to live with total strangers. You don't speak the language, and you wind up being fostered by eight separate families. Kyron Radio's Nate Connors shares Lexi's unique story. At 14 years old, Lexi came to America through an international adoption agency. So I came to the United States in 2016. Um, I was adopted with my sister from Bulgaria. From the start, she had difficulty adjusting to her new surroundings and her adopted mother. I knew nothing about America. I, knew, I didn't even know English, how to even talk to her. She didn't understand um, our home language. But even from like the second day in the United States, you know, waking up, it's like all of the problems happen. It's like, I think it was a lot about like miscommunication and like just the culture differences, uh, the language differences. It was very tough. Nine months later, the adoption failed and life became very complicated. I wasn't able to go back to Bulgaria until like um, I turned 18 um, and no one really cared what happened to me um, after I came here. Imagine being 14 in a foreign country and having no one to fall on. Well, it wasn't easy. I was in seven different foster homes uh, before um, my eighth grade teacher opened her house for me. Even though she didn't have space in her own home for me, she took me in. And since I moved in, I was like 16. And then I basically spent my whole entire uh, high school with them. It was during her stay with her eighth foster home when Lexi was introduced to Treehouse. That's when things began to turn around for Lexi. I felt great that, um, you know, I finally had something uh, because when you move from uh, uh, from home to home, you kind of lose all of your belongings. So it's nice that you have a, like, an, a safe space that you can go and get um, the hygiene even. They even uh, give you hygiene products, but also like clothes and the basic things that a child needs. These services are funded by your donations. Treehouse helps a bunch of kids and I I probably wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for Treehouse because they did show me, you know, that there is a right path for me and that, you know, just because your life has been messed up doesn't mean that, you know, your, your future will be. Um, so of all of the money that Treehouse and the donation that they collect, it will go to a good cause. Now at 19, how are you doing? I have my own apartment. I don't live with anyone else. I'm going to school. And then, yeah, I have a job. Life is good. That's awesome. Lexi is proof that your donations literally change lives for foster kids, giving them support when they need it most. There's one last thing Lexi wants to share. Even for now, even though I'm like 19, I got a, a, a gift from Treehouse for Christmas. And like there is a lot of kids out there who, you know, are struggling during Christmas, especially during holidays, and they don't even have one present. But Treehouse provides that. Everyone deserves love and you know support, during, especially during the holidays. Thank you, Lexi, for sharing your incredible story with us. And thank you. With your generosity and support to Treehouse, stories like Lexi's are made possible. Make your donation by texting MAGIC to 888-973-5476 or visit MyNorthwest.com slash Holiday Magic. Of course, today, Treehouse goes way beyond just Christmas presents. And this Wednesday, we're going to uh, hold the 35th annual Holiday Magic benefit for Treehouse. They provide holiday gifts to the more than 5,000 children and youth in foster care all over Washington, but also other kinds of support, clothing, academic support. So tune in Wednesday for some pretty exciting donation incentive opportunities. You'll hear more Treehouse success stories, and you can get all the info and get a, a head start on Wednesday's event by going to MyNorthwest.com slash holiday magic. <laughs> 
Next hour, we look at the push to throw the book at shoplifters. Right now, let's hear from another candidate in the race to represent Washington's 6th District, where Democrat Derek Kilmer has decided not to run again after 10 years in Congress. In the last two weeks, we've heard from two potential replacements, Democratic State Senator Emily Randall and Republican State Senator Drew McEwen. And today, we will hear from Democratic candidate and current Public Lands Commissioner Hillary France, who last month quickly switched from running for governor to run for the 6th District seat the day after Kilmer announced he was leaving. She spoke with Kyra News Radio's Travis Mayfield about why she made the switch. Well, I think what I bring to this race is something no one else who's thrown their name in or is considering um, has, which is that I know this district very, very well. Like I said, personally, from my experience living here and my family's experience here, but also professionally where I have really worked on the ground in every community, the communities that may be more leaning Republican to the communities that are leaning more Democrat. And I've been able to get results. And I think what voters are looking for, what this district and the people of this district want and need more than ever is results. And I've proven that everything from environmental results to economic results to social results. Um, I'm also one that I think people are looking more than ever for leaders, not just here in Washington State, but in Congress, that are done with the status quo, that are done with the disagreements and the bickering and the fighting and want us to work to bridge the divide, bridge the urban-rural divide that this district represents, bridge the Republican-Democrat divide that this district represents. I have proven that not only on the ground in these communities working um, with communities that lean more Republican or lean more Democrat, but also working in Olympia to uh, with Republicans as well as leaders who may represent more rural districts or represent more urban districts. Um, more than ever, we have got to say the status quo of bickering and fighting is not working here in Washington. It's not working in the other Washington. And I will bring the same big, bold, transformative vision and action that I have as a commissioner of public lands, to work across that divide to get results. A big concern in the 6th District is the future of the ferry system. The district includes the uh, Kitsap and Olympic Peninsulas. And here's what Hillary France said she would do at the federal level. As a longtime ferry commuter um, for almost two decades when I uh, lived on Bainbridge Island and worked uh, across the waters in King County, I understand the importance of ferries and them functioning. Um, and in 2008 through 2011, when I was on the Bainbridge Island City Council, we recognized then the critical need for investing in our failures. We were already having a challenge and problem. And look, you move forward 10, 12 years, we're still having, and the crisis has only grown. Um, we have for far too long underinvested in our ferry system and our transportation system as a whole, where we have vessels that are too old. Um, we have also a shrinkage of crews. We need more workers that are actually being able to build those ferries and maintain them, those ferries, and also people who are servicing those ferries. We know that the federal government has always been a critical funding source for our transportation. It used to be almost 90% of the investments in states in their transportation infrastructure. Obviously, that has not the case. They're now representing more around 10%. The Inflation Reduction Act is absolutely a a positive step forward, but it will not get us very far. I will be urging for a plan, a strategic plan that says, here's the needs we have right now today around fairs, and here's the needs we're going to need 25 years from now, given population growth and the needs of our economy and our community uh, that are dependent on these fairies. And then I will work 
in Congress to get the kind of funding, the significant funding we need for those ferry systems in partnership with the state of Washington, like we used to work very closely in partnership. I will also work to create more opportunities for workforce development in those jobs that are needed to actually service and build these ferries and also maintain them. Public Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz, who, as you might recall, announced originally a run for governor to replace Jay Inslee. And then when Derek Kilmer said he was not going to run for re-election in the 6th Congressional District, she switched and said she's running for Congress now. We're going to hear more from her conversation with Travis Mayfield coming up in the 8 o'clock hour. This is Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen O'Brien and Chris Sullivan. Let's get a retail crime update with Casey McNurthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. We're going to hear a little bit about what it takes to uh, put these people away. For, but, but first, uh, outline again how the problem has changed over the years and the, uh, the tactics that you are now using. Well, the short answer is uh, it's just becoming more and more common. And what a lot of people are surprised by is that under the law, you know, the people who you see at Bartels or at the grocery store leaving with a, a hand cart or a full cart full of merchandise, that's often still a misdemeanor crime, not at the felony level under the law. But what, what we can do and what Nicole Lawson has done, she's part of the Economic Crimes Unit is to combine those cases and work with the city attorney's office to to combine those into a felony charge. And there's a, a number of different felony charges that can, can come, including organized retail theft. Uh, just the other day, Nicole was talking to the state Senate Labor and Commerce Committee, along with others, because they were discussing the issue of, of retail theft and, and what can be done about it and why it's important to do something. Here's what Nicole had to share with the folks down in Olympia. My office believed that what was necessary was having a designated person to be a subject matter expert on retail crimes and to be a point of contact for retailers and law enforcement. As a result of this, my office was able to file triple the number of retail crimes cases in 2022 compared to 2021. Each of those cases represents one or more instance of retail crime. Now, retail-based offenses can be charged under a number of different statutes. They can be charged as a robbery or a burglary in the second degree or trafficking or possessing stolen property. I consistently hear from retailers that their staff has expressed how demoralizing it is to watch individuals commit these types of crimes over and over again and feel powerless to step in and do anything. There's a real human toll to retail crimes on, on employees. We're hearing from Assistant King County Prosecutor Nicole Lawson and from the King County Prosecutor's spokesman, Casey McNerthy. And here's the strategy part, Casey, as I understand it. Since each of these crimes individually may be pretty small, if you can compile a list of these small crimes committed by the same people, you can file a more serious charge that will lead to more jail time, I assume. That's exactly right. And it, it, it is tedious. It is frustrating for business owners and employees to call it in. But that data really makes a big difference. You know, and, and we've also seen how that really pays off, because the more you get that data, the more you can show a pattern and bring that before the court and say, this is not a one off crime. And we hear from defense attorneys all the time. It's just property. But we don't we don't hear that from the, the people who have their property ripped off, who are very frustrated by it. And it's not just frustrating, as Nicole mentioned, the, some of these uh, people can be violent. And so you don't know if you're a if you're a loss prevention officer, do I confront the guy and risk if I'm a cashier? Do I just give him whatever he wants? Uh, do I fight back? Do I run? What do I do? I mean, 
the, that leaves with a, with a pretty insecure feeling as you're walking into work. Absolutely. And, you know, people think that they're going after the big corporations, but the people in the suits who they think they're targeting are, are not the ones who are affected by it. It's the people at Lowe's or Home Depot or Target who are working those those jobs. And they're the ones that get a knife or a gun in their face or get assaulted. You know, here's what Nicole had to tell the committee about that violent element. There is an increase in violence during these retail crimes that puts both these employees at risk and that puts the customers at risk. To that end, we recently established a new economic crimes and wage theft division. The goal of that division is to bring greater accountability to defendants who commit economic crimes, including retail crimes. Casey, I heard you mention that some of the uh, some of the ripoff artists think that all they're doing is going up against a corporation. Is some of this a, a, a deliberate slap at capitalism? Is, is that what you're getting at? We hear that in court sometimes, and we certainly hear it on social media, too, where people say, you know, it doesn't matter if you're targeting Lowe's or Home Depot because they can uh, absorb those costs. But what they don't realize is those costs are passed on to the consumer, uh, regardless of their income level. And, and, it's, and more importantly, the people who are, who are really being hurt by this are the employees who, who see these people face-to-face in, in very often violent situations. So what are the stats? What's your conviction rate? Well, it really depends by the case. But what we're doing is, I mean, almost every day we're filing these cases, retail crime cases, I mean, really every day, and almost every day for organized retail theft. It depends on on the number of cases that we get from police, and there are fewer detectives to do that work to get us those cases. But the ones who are there are certainly working very hard, and we appreciate what they're doing, not just in Seattle, but across King County. I know you also have been tracking the uh, number of uh, uh, crimes involving guns, and it's still running way ahead of where it was years ago, right? Yeah, it is. So as of Sunday, uh, there were 159 call-outs so far this year. And, and when you compare that to 2016, there was 68 for the entire year. So we're, you know, we're seeing that increase. And as you, know, you might have read this week in the, in the Seattle Times and elsewhere, that, that it's not unique to King County. It's, it's happening statewide. But that... Maybe the only benefit to that is it is making people statewide come together to say, how can we fix this? Do you have an update on that incident where somebody was uh, shooting from uh, a car on uh, on I-5? Yeah. So the state patrol made an arrest in that case late Thursday, and there was probable cause for uh, one of those shootings. And King County prosecutors were at the first appearance Saturday afternoon, and uh, bail wasn't addressed uh, but we did argue that there was uh, – and it wasn't addressed because the defendant refused to come to court, uh, which is their right to do if they want to. But uh, what King County prosecutors argued with the, was that there was probable cause for two counts of first-degree assault and two counts of drive-by shooting, uh, which the court agreed with. And and so we anticipate getting much more information from the state patrol investigators this week for a charging decision, and we'll act on that right away when we get it. And the reason this guy was firing shots from a moving car was, do we know? Well, what the state patrol said was that he was hearing voices and and that he admitted to being on meth. And so that's that's not a good combo. Uh, no, it is not. All right, Casey McNerthy from the King County Prosecutor's Office. Casey, thank you. Thanks a lot, Dave. You can tell that the your brain is sort of melting after spending that yes. much time with a child. Yes, it can. <laughs> you know how it feels. Yeah. The Daily Dose of Kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. A local philanthropist and a group of Tulane University students teamed up to design and build wheelchairs for kids with disabilities. CBS's David Begno introduces us to the group behind the effort. 
Meet Jackson. He's a four-year-old boy from Covington, Louisiana. Look at that big smile. He has dystonia. It's a condition that affects his muscles. And he has a developmental delay. He doesn't walk or speak. When they offered you this wheelchair, was he mobile at all at that time? Elizabeth and Brian Fabregas are Jackson's parents. They say after eight months in that chair, Jackson has been able to sit up on his own. And now he's moving around independently. So it gave him a more ground level view. Yep, mm -hmm. that's what made me happy because it's like he's included with everything. The parents say that the toy-like chair has been wonderful because it created a playful experience with Jackson's older brother, Brody, and has been the bridge from not walking to now using a walker. Okay, so give us the report card. How would you grade it? It's an A plus. I mean, it, it's helped Jackson, you know, become more mobile and be able to be adapting to the other things that he's going to be offered. It's helped his development. Now, meet the man at the front of this creation, Noam Platt. He's an architect in New Orleans who heads up an organization called Make Good. They focus on assistive technology, the kinds of devices people can't find in the commercial workplace or can't afford. Pull this out. Platt came across the design for the chair on an Israeli website that lists open source information for developers like him. You just called the hospitals and said, hey, I'm making this. Might you have a need for it? Yeah, I mean, I have a previous relationship with some of these health systems through my work as an architect. And part of it is really empowering the clinicians to understand that we can go beyond what's commercially available. We can really create almost anything. Get those bells. Sebastian Grant. He was born premature at just 24 weeks old. He spent 10 months in the neonatal ICU. He has gone through more in his 15 months of life than adults have gone through their whole life. Sebastian needs a trach to breathe, and he's still being fed through a tube. Sebastian, look! <laughs> need your little chair! We were there with Sebastian's parents, Tamara and Shane Michael, when he got his customized chair. This is a chair that he could be in and go around the house and actually be in himself a little right. bit. Right. Yeah, I'm scared for when we get to that point. <laughs> I hope your heels are ready, because he going to be running into y'all with that little <laughs> chair. All day. That's why they put bumpers, bumpers on, on the front. front. Yes, yes. I, I, I'm happy no one. That is CBS's David Begnell. And now, joining us from the Gian Ursula Show, which you can hear from 9 to noon here on Carnage Radio, here's G. Scott. Good morning, Dave Ross. It's good to see you back, man. You, you didn't go to Vegas, right? I did not go to Vegas. Okay. No. I went to Connecticut. <laughs> Somebody I, thought they saw Dave in Vegas. Yeah, well, good luck. <laughs> You've never been, though, right? I've been to the airport. Yeah, that's why. Remember, we were going to do a road trip, G. Mm -hmm. Scott, Dave Ross, in right. Vegas. I'll film it. Dave, yeah. Dave you've, you've really never like been to Vegas like outside of the airport? No. I've never been to a Vegas casino. I've, I've seen the slot machines at the airport, mm -hmm. but I've been to two casinos, uh, the one up uh, at the pass there and uh, the Mohegan Sun Casino in New York. I wow. Okay. It. Oh, okay. My mother used to like to play the nickel machines. The nickel slots. Yeah. Hey, at least we're not the Carolina Panthers. That's all I have to say. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's, it's been rough. Uh, the Seattle Seahawks um, have been really not getting it together. It is unusual. As a matter of fact, not since 2009 have the Seahawks lost four games in a row, Colleen. Oh, no. Right? Four games in a row. They start. They were 6-3 and three at one point in this season. They are now 6-7. and seven. And they got beat 
up by the 49ers. Brock Purdy, the Niners quarterback, was 19 for 27 with a career high of 368 yards passing. How did we let this happen? Because the San Francisco right 49ers are just better than the Seahawks right now. So it's not. I thought it was tell the truth Monday, G. It, it is. It is tell the truth, and we I'm, I'm going to get to accountability. That in a I all mean, right. yeah, and all over the board. Yes, the Seahawks gave up 9.9 yards per play. That means every time the ball was snapped on offense for the Niners, Dave, that means that they averaged not. That's a first yeah. down a play. How they gave up 527 yards. The final score was 28 to 16. And yes, they have been swept by the Niners this season. And yes, they've been swept by the Rams this season. But the biggest thing that stood out to me, the thing that hurt my soul, the thing that I'm thinking about right now is this. Yesterday, a fight broke out oh, yeah. on the field. I saw that. DK Metcalf goes to grab Fred Warner's helmet and he's grabbing it and it's DK Metcalf and he's grabbing that helmet, right? This is the part I will never forget. Fred Warner, as his helmet is being grabbed, does he grab at DK? Does he try to push at DK? No. He just stands there. He puts his arms in the air and he smirks. Just let And he laughs. And he lets it happen. And he's letting it happen. And then afterwards, he goes over to the sidelines and he stands on the bench and he's looking at his fans and he's doing like an orchestra, like, like a, cho- a choir conductor. And he's being nice and the fans are loving Ouch. him and Ouch. he's loving them. And it was at that moment yeah. that I said, did Fred Warner just yes, dear, no, dear, the Seahawks? Uh, you know how sometimes you have possibly, at least me, I get into everything spat going on with my wife, mm-hmm. and then I realize that the thing to do is say yes, dear, mm-hmm. and no, dear. Mm-hmm. That's what Fred Warner just did to the Seahawks. He just absolutely, it's okay. Is DK Take known your- for losing it? Like I didn't think he was for fighting like that. That's That shows complete loss of control. What? Yeah, yeah. that's it. That's his thing. That's his thing? That's his thing. Oh, yeah, that's, that's sad. That is his thing. It, it shows right? desperation. Yeah, yeah but it, you know, nobody has responded that way. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Of course. When, 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 you when, rise when, above. When somebody, yes. when you just like, like <laughs> okay, go ahead, move along now. Yeah. That was Fred Warner yesterday. And so that's what made the loss hurt so much because not only did they lose, it was like a transform, transformation, transition of power, mm. right? The, the 49ers took the soul and the power they got of the inside Seahawks his head. that the Seahawks have had for so yeah. long. But now you come to reality, the last five games that the Seahawks have played against the Niners, the Niners have won five in a row. So is the season over? No, they have a uh, game Monday night. Should I be more specific? 17, 17% chance of w- of making it to the playoffs. All right. 17%. 17% chance. So they do not control their destiny. Well, you know, the mo- you know what movie is it where they said, so you say there's a chance. Yes. Dumb and dumb Dumb and dumber. dumber. <laughs> G. Scott, 9 o'clock. Well, there's a lot. Kyra News Radio. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.